Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Deadly clashes between two armed factions, the Sudan Armed Forces, known as SAF, and the Rapid Support Forces, known as RSF, broke out in Khartoum and throughout Sudan on April 15th. Three days into the conflict, at least 180 civilians have been killed and hundreds have been injured in the crossfire. Extensive fighting has been reported in Khartoum as gunfights spill into the street in the capital and shelling hits the city. Hospitals are being targeted and many are sheltering in place without electricity. An estimated 15.8 million in Sudan, around one-third of the population, required humanitarian assistance before the outbreak of conflict. And this number is likely to grow as clashes continue. Today is April 20th. We're recording this as these events are unfolding. They might obviously change as the situation is very dynamic. I'm joined today to discuss the situation in Sudan by Cameron Hudson, who is a senior associate non-resident here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cameron is an analyst and consultant on African peace, security, and governance issues. He previously served as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Africa Center and also as executive director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Simon Schertz Center for the Prevention of Genocide. In his earlier career, he also served as the chief of staff to successive presidential special envoys for Sudan during the period of South Sudan separation from Sudan and the Darfur genocide. Cameron, welcome to Into Africa. It's great to be here, Bemba. What has triggered the current situation? How did we get here? So how we got here is a fairly long road. The RSF emerged from the conflict in Darfur and the Arab Janjaweed militia stood up by President al-Bashir. They were a kind of a useful counterweight to the Sudan Armed Forces, both operationally but also politically for Bashir. Bashir was very interested in kind of what they call coup-proofing his regime so that no one side of the security forces became too powerful or, or in fact so powerful that they could challenge his rule. And so by design almost, the RSF was seen by the Bashir regime as a counterweight to keep the Sudan Armed Forces in check. What's happened over the course of the last decade, though, is it's become a real operational rival to the Sudan Armed Forces. Flash forward to just recently this year, as part of the political talks that have been going on under the auspices of the U.S. and others in Sudan trying to reestablish civilian rule in the country, there has been a portion of those talks dedicated to security sector reform and essentially trying to create one national army out of these two competing forces. And so in the last few weeks, there has been, I think, growing tension between these two factions as they negotiate the terms under which the rapid support forces would be folded into the Sudan armed forces. And that is what has triggered the current outbreak of violence. But I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of kind of cultural and tribal 
and political animosity between these two groups that has always existed between these two groups. The Sudan Armed Forces see themselves as a professional army trained by the Egyptian uh, military with their officer corps having gone to command and staff college. They see themselves as having a very constitutional role in the country, whereas the RSF are viewed certainly by the military as, you know, a mercenary army, a militia group, uneducated, untrained in proper military tactics. And so there's a real sort of chauvinism and looking down upon the RSF. And so those tensions were becoming impossible to paper over through a political negotiation. And again, that's, I think, what contributed to the to the fighting we see today. So in part, this is a question of uh, security sector reform. I think another dimension will be General Abdel Fattah al-Buran, who's de facto president of Sudan, asserting his authority and the other ones resisting? Well, there's certainly part of that. I mean, I think I think there's two elements to these talks that have essentially broken down. One, with General Burhan, regarding whether or not he would allow the military to become subservient to civilian leaders. So in the last two years, there was an attempt to establish civilian rule under a civilian prime minister and cabinet in Sudan. But during that period, the civilian cabinet never really had control over the security services. They operated as an independent entity in the country and, frankly, with power over the civilian government. And so the idea here is that if we're going to establish civilian rule in the country, it has to have control over the armed forces. And so I think one of the big questions at the heart of not only security sector reform, but the whole fate of Sudan's democratic revolution is whether or not the army will submit to civilian rule. That's one question. And of course, the second question was, how do we now create a unified national army of these two essentially competing factions of the security service? And this is within the context, you just mentioned the revolution, which started, what, three, four years ago now, and is not, it's remaining complete. It's remaining complete because the military literally perverted the process. Is this the same military then is trying to unify the system in preparation for the civil, for civilian rule? Well, I think what we can see now quite clearly is that the military, as it has done in past negotiations, has been saying one thing and doing quite another. So I think that Sudan, if you look back at the history of some of the kind of peace agreements and political agreements, certainly the ones that I've been associated with, whether that's the comprehensive peace agreement that ended the North-South Civil War, the Darfur genocide, or the separation of South Sudan and Sudan, I think what you see throughout all of those kind of complex negotiations is a history of the Sudanese army essentially telling the international community what it wants to hear, and even signing peace agreements that they had no intention of implementing. And I I think we've seen that now that's certainly bearing out in terms of the fighting that's going on now. Up until days before the fighting broke out, General Burhan was telling international uh, mediators that he was pro-democracy, that he was willing to go forward with security sector reform and that he was fully on board with having the, the military become subservient to civilian leaders. When in fact, I think the truth is that he was making preparations for this conflict and to you know, maintain his control not only over the security services in the country, but over, you know, the civilian authorities in the country as well. So who are the two the two antagonists here? Who are the two leaders? Who are they? What's the background? What should the world know about them? 
Well, I guess, first of all, General Burhan is a, you know, it's sort of military man product of Sudan's military academy. He went also to military academy in Egypt, actually served with uh, General Sisi, Egypt's president in military academy. He comes from uh, the northern state of Sudan, which is sort of the, you know, seen as the sort of elite of the country, at least by by other Arab elites in the country. And, you know, sort of represents a very traditional background background uh, in Sudan's military, came up through the military ranks, serving in Darfur, serving in the wars in South Sudan as well. So clearly someone with a lot of blood on his hands from uh, having served under President Bashir. But it's not known necessarily to be a kind of hardcore Islamist faction, which, which we know has been increasing its hold over the army. So there is a kind of a hardcore group of former regime loyalists who remain loyal to the National Congress Party, the party of, of President Bashir, who we understand to be essentially holding General Burhan hostage. I think by all accounts, there has been a good sense that Burhan is not particularly interested in being president of Sudan and certainly not necessarily interested in taking over the, the kind of long-term dictator role that his predecessor, General uh, Omar al-Bashir, held. You know, so he is uh, someone I think was perhaps looking for an exit ramp for himself, but was I think in many ways captured by a hardcore group of of Islamists within within the army. On the flip side, General Hameti is a very very you know sort of different character altogether. He is Darfuri, has a Sudanese father and a Chadian mother. He came up as a essentially a trader in Darfur, was enlisted into the Janjaweed at the time of the conflict in Darfur. But I think many people would describe him as a businessman more than as a uh, as a military leader, which I guess makes him a warlord in many respects. You know, he he has used his command of the rapid support forces to enrich himself. He's used that army to take over gold mining areas and to amass quite a fortune on a whole host of companies throughout that region. He's established ties to Libya, to the United Arab Emirates, again, as a, as a mercenary leader fighting their wars for them. And in recent years, I think we've seen him really trying to reinvent himself for a future political career in the country. He is much more adept at the kind of grassroots politicking and public relations that you would see in kind of retail politics. And so he's done a lot to kind of cultivate an image of himself as being aligned with the people. And I think it's it's important to say, you know, a lot of the tension, a lot of the violence that has dogged Sudan for so many decades of its history has been this violence between Arab elites in the center, in the capital of the country, imposing their will on minority tribes in the peripheral parts of the country, right? Whether that's in Darfur or South Sudan. And so the appeal of someone like General Hameti right now is that he positions himself as being from one of those downtrodden groups in the periphery, right? And I think one of the reasons why the violence in Khartoum is so dangerous right now is because there's a sense that he is bringing the violence that the peripheral regions have experienced for so long at the hands of the central government, he's bringing that to the capital, right? And so he is trying to position himself as as being a populist uh, in this sense and, and is trying to kind of even the score by, by having this uprising of the periphery against the center. I would suspect that neither... John Bulharn, nor uh, 
General Emete have any political base beyond, if we can call the military a political base. They have weapons, they have the armies or the two armies, two factions behind them. But do they have any link to civilians that will be supporting them? Well, I think, as I said, the military in General Burhan is, I think, captured. I think his base would be the kind of former regime elements. You know, there was an effort underway under the civilian government to try to rid the civilian government of all of these former NCP, former regime hardliners. And what we saw General Burhan do is essentially a kind of a marriage of convenience with them when it looked like he was being defanged by civilian authorities during the transition. He essentially reached out to many of those hardline elements as a base of support. It turns out, though, that he could not control them. And now it appears that he might be more captured by them than using them. Uh, and then conversely, General Hermeti, I mean, he has clearly tried to position himself as a populist leader in the last few weeks and months. He's hired PR firms and has a pretty robust kind of social media presence that he that he cultivates very closely to position himself as, I think, a political figure going forward. I think he sees, you know, which way the wind is blowing in Sudan, that the international community is pushing to move politics out of the security sector and into the civilian sector. And so he is positioning himself now not to be a military leader or a militia leader, but to be a, a politician. So you see him, you know, quite you know, physically wearing more business suits than commando fatigues now. You see him traveling the region, essentially burnishing his diplomatic skills, you know, really trying to present an alternative impression of who he is. So he is trying to cultivate a base, I think, among, you know, oppressed populations in the peripheral areas of the country, namely in Darfur. I think his biggest challenge is that he was their biggest oppressor. I mean, he has an enormous amount of blood on his hands from his days of running this Arab militia in Darfur. So I think it's it's difficult for people to look beyond that, even with all the kind of splashy and glamorous videos and social media posts that he makes. I think at his heart, he remains a warlord. You mentioned the international dimension of this. You mentioned that the RSF had been involved in Libya, in Yemen, with relations with Saudi Arabia and so on. That could not have happened without the tacit, I presume, or even explicit support of Bahrain himself, or maybe it started in the days of Bashir. So that's one element. Staying on the international side, it will be interesting to see, there are a lot of talks about this being a source of potential international tensions, right? So the role of that Egypt, Saudis, we mentioned them, the Ethiopians, there seems to be a lot of uh, other interests here that have been kind of in the background. Do you think this can be a trigger point? In that case, what are the regional actors who may who have interest in this? But then on the bigger scale, where do you know the, uh, the United States and the EU and others stand? And then finally, in the same breath here, social media are already full of stories about the role of the Wagner Group and some analysts on this social media saying that this is a proxy war, this is the beginning of a proxy war between the United States and Russians. What are you hearing? I'll, uh, I'll try to be concise. I think it's right to look at the layers of influence in concentric circles. So you're absolutely right to touch on the neighbors because I've been saying, I think since the start of this, that I don't think that the neighbors are going to stay on the sidelines for very long. So the, the unique thing, I guess, about, about Sudan is it, of its seven neighbors, I would say that 
six of them are either coming out of some kind of civil conflict or rebellion and are weak, fragile, if not failing states, right? So you have Libya, Chad, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Egypt. That's a very tough neighborhood. And in the Horn of Africa, there is a long history of states meddling in the regional affairs of their neighbors, right? And so we have already seen from press reporting up to this point that Egypt is likely playing an actual operational role on the side of the Sudan Armed Forces, that uh, militia elements in Libya have been supporting General Hameti with weapons and fuel. We have heard reports that the Chadians are beginning to mobilize their forces on the side of the border, that they have a mutual defense treaty with the Sudanese armed forces that ended the fighting between Bashir and President Deby a decade ago, which could be activated to support the Sudan armed forces if the rapid support forces tried to either fall back to Darfur or enter Chad. We've heard that General Hameti may be trying to activate uh, rebel forces in the Central African Republic uh, to come to his Aid. Similarly, we've heard of negotiations between General Hameti and President Isaias in Eritrea to resupply General Hameti and perhaps send additional troops. So this is just within the last five days that all of these neighbors are beginning to take uh, positions and, and if not enter in, then uh, preparing some scenarios under which they are acting on their own national interest to make sure that they have, that there's a suitable outcome in this conflict. So that's that's deeply concerning because I think this could very quickly turn into a regional war involving a half a dozen or more countries. If you take a step out, then I think you can look at sort of the, the next level of being the uh, great and middle powers that have been playing a role in Sudan for the past several years, certainly since the revolution. So obviously the United States and European allies have been pushing for a political agreement very strongly, I think. You've got the Saudis and the Emiratis who have been, I think, by and large, I think, playing along and joining with the U.S. and Europeans in pushing for a more civilian dispensation. I think there is some suggestion now, now that the fighting has started, that maybe they are not uh, staying on the sidelines. We're already seeing some reports about the Emiratis perhaps supporting uh, General Hometi, who they've worked with, obviously, in a mercenary capacity for, for many years. That's certainly concerning. And then we've seen others like Turkey making statements more recently. So I think there's a host of middle powers in the not too distant region that could begin playing a role, obviously, through weapons sales or financial assistance. So that's something that I think Washington is going to be keen to keep an eye on. And then the last bit of this is the kind of the Russian angle and, and maybe what we would call the great power competition. The Wagner Group has been in Sudan since before Bashir was deposed. We know that the Wagner Group has provided the RSF with technical know-how and support, perhaps even some training and equipment in a more modest way. And I think there's every reason to believe that the Wagner Group is still there in Sudan now assisting the RSF. One of the kind of telltale signs is some of the propaganda that the General Hameti has been using. That seems to be a kind of telltale sign of, of, of Russia support in, in many ways. So 
I certainly don't put it past Wagner to be on the side of the RSF right now. We don't have any hard reporting to suggest that they're playing a more operational role. But I think to give a little maybe more nuance to that, I think it's probably unfair to say that, at least from a U.S. perspective, the Wagner role is driving our interest in this. I don't see Sudan as being the kind of a frontline state in this kind of great global competition. For sure, the United States is concerned that Russia could be trying to establish a stronger foothold in the country. We know for, for many years the Russian military has been trying to reach an agreement to establish a warm water naval port on the Red Sea coast of Sudan. So those are certainly geostrategic concerns that Washington has, but I don't think that those concerns are what lie at the heart of U.S. interest and involvement in Sudan right now. In the middle of this will be calls of engagement by, as you call them, middle and greater powers, yeah. The U.S. particularly and European allies and maybe others, and maybe there's a role for China in terms of diffusing this. What are the options there? Well, sadly, I think that, you know, as we sit here today, the options look pretty grim in terms of reaching a, a mediated settlement. I think we have to kind of take some baby steps right now. For the past two days, the parties have said that they would agree to a kind of humanitarian pause in the fighting to allow civilians that are trapped in downtown Khartoum to get out of the center of the city or at least to resupply themselves with food and water and medicine and, and medical care. But within literally minutes of declaring those ceasefires in the last two days, they have broken down with shelling and machine gun fire again. So I think the first priority before we can begin to talk about, you know, political settlements is, you know, can we even get a ceasefire that holds for five minutes so that trapped civilians can can resupply themselves? I think if we can get to that and then build on that, then perhaps we can get to a 24-hour a pause where we can actually begin to evacuate parts of the city, including a sizable American and international population that is also uh, trapped and maybe targeted even in some of this. So I think those are the, the kind of the U.S. priorities at this moment. It's hard to imagine, given what General Hameti and General Burhan have said about each other publicly just in the last five days, based on the limited interviews that they've given and public statements they've released, it's hard to imagine them sitting down at a table and having a political discussion or even returning to where they left off in the political discussion. I said very early on that this fight represents security sector reform in the country. The only way that you're going to get to a single security force in this country is to have one of those security forces completely defeated. I think that is their strategy for security sector reform, sadly, right now. And it just shows a kind of blatant disregard for the country and the people in the country who have invested in the idea that Sudan could be a civilian democratic state. Khartoum is obviously a huge humanitarian crisis now over the last several days that the war, the clashes have been ongoing. What's the state in uh, the rest of the country? 
Well, again, I think unlike other conflicts like the Tigray conflict that we saw recently playing out in Ethiopia, which was limited to the Tigray region, we are seeing fighting break out in every major city and every major region of the country, from the border of South Sudan to the western border in Darfur to the east and the areas along the Red Sea coast and cities in between. All major military bases in the country are locations of fighting that's that's going on, and as are the major cities. And what we're seeing is many of these cities trading hands back and forth between SAF and RSF. And so again, that, that gets back to the sort of the regional dimension. As countries see fighting happening on their borders, as Chad sees violence and instability in Darfur, as Central African Republic sees violence and instability, as South Sudan sees it encroaching on its border, I think it's it's highly likely that these sides are going to begin to take actions to try to ensure their interests, or at least just the security of their own borders, to make sure that nothing from Sudan spills off into their country. So again, I think that the fact that fighting has extended to all corners of the country both creates a regional dimension that we should be worried about, but also I think it puts huge new pressure on the humanitarian situation because what it means is those you know 15 million people that you talked about at the top of the podcast who remain in need of international humanitarian assistance, it limits our options for continuing to supply those populations with the assistance that they need to survive, and it adds much greater numbers to the assistance role. So I would not be surprised if in the days ahead we saw if there was an opportunity mass evacuations of Sudanese civilians pouring across regional borders. I see lots of messages on, you know, my, you know, WhatsApp groups and friend groups of people talking about crossing into Egypt or taking a boat across the Red Sea or crossing into Ethiopia. So people are right now looking for any option to to get out of the the crossfire. In terms of Global context of this, global meaning within the context of Sudan, the national context, what will be the impact on the democratic transition? There is no democratic transition in Sudan anymore. That's over. I don't know what will come next. I don't know how you sift through the ashes of what will be left of this country when this fighting is over, but there is no political transition anymore. Are we starting from square one? Are we starting from something less than square one? I honestly can't tell you that. It is devastating for for the people who for four years have been agitating for a return to civilian rule. I think one thing that's quite notable in this fighting is the lack of voice of civilian political leaders. The people who were at the center of the political talks, who were negotiating, taking over the country, they have been virtually silent in all of this. So you can see just how weak civilian leadership in the country is. There is no no single voice that is rising up right now. People are in survival mode. And it just is, I think, another another measure of the fact that even though we thought we were getting close to perhaps reestablishing civilian rule, we were actually much further away than we thought. On that note... We thank you, Cameron, for joining us today. Thank you, Vemba. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.